Hey friends, welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. You know, leadership over this last year, it's felt pretty uncertain. It's felt pretty divisive. In fact, definitely more than I've ever experienced before in my leadership. And, and frankly, the future isn't much clearer. How do we make decisions when the future isn't predictable and, and, and your team has different opinions? How do you make decisions in that kind of environment? You might be looking for clarity on how to make the right decisions to advance your mission here in 2021. Or you might be looking for how to change quickly to meet the constantly changing landscape. Or you might be looking for how to get team buy-in on every decision so you're not the only one carrying the load alone. Then you should check out Carrie Newhoff's free resource, the Pivot Ready Check Sheet. This is an incredible free resource for you. This cheat sheet will give you a framework that is effective and resilient leaders use to make decisions to take action. Listen, to get access, this is what I want you to do. Just text Pivot Ready, all one word, Pivot Ready, no space in the middle there, to 33777, and you'll get a copy d- delivered directly to your inbox. If you're outside the U.S., don't worry. We got it for you. All you need to do is go to PivotReadyCheatSheet.com. That's PivotReadyCheatSheet.com to access your copy. All right, let's jump in with today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. Are you looking for practical ministry help to drive your ministry further, faster? Have a sinking feeling that your ministry training didn't prepare you for the real world? Hey, you're not alone. Join thousands of others in pursuit of stuff that we wish they had taught in seminary. Buckle up and let's get started with this week's Unseminary Podcast. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. So glad that you are tuned in today. Uh, we know that you've got a lot going on, but the fact that you listen to us today, it's just, just such an honor and uh, you're going to be time well spent. You know, every week we try to bring you a church leader that will both inspire and inform you, give you a sense of kind of the future. And today, uh, we have no exception to that. It's going to be great. We've got Aaron Graham with us. He, we have a common friend in Richard Lee who's been on the podcast before and who is uh, also a personal friend. Really love Richard. But uh, Aaron is uh, the lead pastor of a church at, uh, called the District Church, which is in Washington, D.C. was started uh, by him and his wife in 2010. Uh, he's a, a real church planner background. He's done all kinds of amazing things at, uh, at the district. So we're excited to have you on the show today. Aaron, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me, Rich, and hello to everybody listening. No, so excited that you're here. Why don't you kind of tell us about the district? Give us a sense of the church. Kind of tell us a bit of that story. Yeah, so we just celebrated 10 years uh, this fall. Uh, well, congratulations. Church, so that was a great, yeah, that was a great milestone. Um, you know, as a church planner, you never know if you'll get even to year one or three or five. So every year is mm-hmm. a gift and uh, really grateful uh, for that. But we um, really started with humble beginnings. We started, my wife Amy and I started in our home um, and we outgrew our home and moved into a charter school and then moved into a high school. And um, our vision from the very beginning has really been to be a church for the city, um, to impact our city for Christ one neighborhood at a time. And so um, it's been really exciting. We're located in the neighborhood of Columbia Heights, which is two miles north of the White House. So we're right in the mm-hmm. center of the city. And um, really the most diverse neighborhood of D.C. as well. So um, we uh, have been fortunate to have a lot of that diversity represented in our church. Um, so we have about 74 nationalities in our church and um, mostly young, mostly young people. So a lot of 20s and 30 somethings who moved to D.C. to change the world or to get their education or work in government or public service or a nonprofit. 
and or an advocacy in some way. And so um, really wanting to be a church uh, for folks um, to understand that, hey, you can't change the world apart from Christ and apart from from the local church. And uh, so that's been a big passion of ours um, over these last 10 years. So, yeah, so we've just um, kind of steadily and consistently grown um, over the last 10 years and just really seeking to be engaged in the city and into intentional discipleship um, as well. So, yeah, that's very cool. Now, what would you say um, would be some of the distinctives? You know, I know a little bit about your church, but what would be some of the things that would make the district um, maybe a little bit different than uh, than than other churches in your community? What has kind of been the unique, you know, God print, thumbprint that's on, yeah. uh, you know, on the district? Yeah, it's interesting because I think about 90 to 95 percent of what every church does is pretty similar, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. trying to make disciples, trying to impact the city you know, trying to lead people into worship, into community life and outward towards mission. So we share all of that. You know, we get that all from scripture, um, from the Great Commission to make disciples. But I think what makes us distinct, kind of our unique DNA and calling that not every church is called to, but certainly we're not the only one called to these things. Um, We call them our three M's. So the first one is being missional. And so that's really about helping equip people to be a missionary in everyday life, to see their calling as beyond just the four walls of the church. And so we have a lot of emphasis on how do you live this out in your workplace? Um, So many people, like I said, moved to DC to change the world. So they're thinking about their work as a vocation and as a calling. And Mm. DC has a way of chewing people up and spitting them out. You know, people burn out here, you know, it's like they overwork and, you know, it's so easy to put your identity in what you do. And so mm-hmm. we have a lot of discipleship that's focused on really that kind of, um, h- how do you be equipped to live out your faith in, beyond the walls of the church? And then, um, and there's a couple of ways that we express that through our justice ministries. Um, we've started two um, justice-based ministries called uh, DC-127, around foster care and adoption and then just homes, which is around affordable housing. And that's sort of how we live that missional calling out collectively as a church, but we're also trying to help individuals live that out as well. So that there's missional. The second one is multicultural. Um, So how are we making disciples of all nations on earth as it is in heaven Mm -hmm. and really reflecting the diversity of our neighborhood and kind of, figuring out what does it mean to not just be a multi-ethnic church, but be a multicultural church. So that's a distinctive of ours. And then the last one is to be a multiplying church of saying, hey, we want to be a part of developing leaders, training them, multiplying churches, um, you know, beyond just our own church. So we have like a district fellows program where young people come um, spend a year serving with us um, and getting trained for ministry. We have a house that's dedicated to that purpose. Um, so those are those three things, missional, multicultural and multiplying, I think, are the things that are distinctive. Yeah, I'd love to, to drill into that a little bit. You um, you used a phrase that some people may not be, you know, they may be, may, may be a new phrase that people haven't really heard of before. Uh, you used the phrase justice ministries. Help me understand, what do you mean by justice ministries? What's kind of the frame of that? That might be, uh, you know, something that people really haven't had a chance to kind of think about before. Yeah, absolutely. So when I use the word justice, I know that name, that word gets thrown around a lot in terms of, you know, in the political sphere or social justice or, you know, criminal justice or judicial um, system. And so there's a lot of different ways. And I think it's important for the church to define our terms. And this is obviously a term that's used a lot in the Bible. And so we talk a lot about biblical justice. Biblical justice is 
seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, it includes things like social justice around you know, economic um, justice for the poor and seeing them lifted up. Um, but it's really a sense of what, what does heaven look like, how we partner on that. So I think as it relates to justice ministries of the church, what we're, we're trying to discern as a church is how do we meet the felt needs of a city in a way that goes beyond just simply short-term interventions to really um, see people free and flourish at every level. And so, um, so that's, that's something that we really call our church to. And some people kind of come into the church already having a concept and valuing things like justice, but it's not necessarily biblical justice. And then some people have a very inward understanding of faith and part of doing justice ministries is helping them see the ministry beyond the walls of the church and the needs that are out there in our city and world. You know, I, I love that. I, I love the idea of how and how do we continue to encourage our people to see that their faith, uh, it's not uh, its not a fire escape plan that just like you do something now and then it gets you, uh, you, you know, a, a ticket out of, of hell long term. It's like a, you know, just a path to heaven. Um, obviously, it is that, but it all we're also required and, and in fact, invited into this amazing opportunity to see God do something in our world today. I love that you're encouraging your people to take those steps. Um, I, so this may be a bit of a, a uh, hopefully our relationship can sustain this question. I sure. know across the country, it's a, uh, you know, we, we've, we've just been through a presidential election year. Every time that happens, it's like, man, it seems like politics, it's, it can be a tricky thing to, to navigate as a, you know, as a church leader. I can only imagine <laughs> that in DC, mm-hmm. that is even more ramped up. Help me kind of pull apart, understand how do we help people engage in justice issues where some people might see those as really partisan or political issues. Uh, how do we help people pull those to as part and see them, like you say, as a biblical issue, as a part of our faith rather than really a political piece? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a very, I mean, obviously we're living in a very charged time culturally and politically. And I know so many pastors I've talked to, it's difficult. It's challenging because how do you speak to the issues of today without reflecting the culture where you're actually transforming it? And how do you, if you speak to it, um, not just sound like you're on the far left or the far right, how do we actually transform that and transcend that? And so that's something that we live in all the time. I mean, D.C. is super politically charged right now. Most of downtown is still boarded up right now um, since after the election. I mean, you can't go within half a mile of the White House and see businesses not still boarded up. Um, You know, and so we have people that move here and join our church and they're on both political parties. We have elected officials that serve at the highest levels of government on both sides in our church. So it's something Mm -hmm. that we have to think about um, constantly. And so I think that part of it is understanding the biblical role of government, of what government is to do and not to do, and also understanding the biblical role of the local church. And I think that a lot of people don't understand the differences for that, 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 that there is a biblical role um, for, just, uh, for, for, for the government to restrain um, evil and to promote justice. Now, good and honest Christians can agree on things like um, reducing poverty and disagree about which policy intervention will help get us there. So for an example, um, one person might say, hey, yeah, I want to see unemployment go down um, and homelessness go down in our city. 
But, you know, I think that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is actually going to create less jobs. And you got some, you know, and because it's going to, I'm not going to be able to hire as many people. Uh, and then you have another person is saying, no, from a moral standpoint, people can't pay rent in this city and, and raise a family if they're not making at least $15 an hour. I think good and honest Christians can be in the same church and disagree about that, but agree that we've got to see poverty reduced in our country. And I think those are the kind of debates that um, too often we come at it from a political um, standpoint. And I think, honestly, it's because most or many folks in churches are more discipled um, by the media than we are by the word of God. So when we come to church on Sundays, we come like we actually are formed. Our frameworks, our mindsets are more formed by Fox News or MSNBC or name whoever, which which each side is becoming more and more polarized than we are by the word of God. And so as pastors, we have to, and church leaders, we have to think about how do we create language that's not so polarizing, but that still aims us right at the mission. And, um, and so I think that's, that's a big heart that I have. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about starting church-based justice mm-hmm. ministries. I think the local church is the hope of the world. And I think that too often we outsource outreach to the government or we don't do it at all. And I think that we need to recover the core of what the church has done when it's been at its best throughout church history is that we're out there caring for the poor. We're out there caring for the widows, for the orphan, that it's making headline news, not because we're wanting to be in headline news, but it's making headline news because, you know, what? when nobody else will care for the sick and dying, the local church will put their life on the line. And that's what that's what separates the church from the government. Um, that's what separates us from the market or from businesses. That at the end of the day, a business is going to do something for its bottom line financially. At the end of the day, an elected official is going to do something to get reelected. But the local church that we're called and motivated by something much deeper in our faith, a much more eternal cause. And I think that's what that's our unique contribution. We'll bet our life on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's totally. so many times so, so often missing in, in justice work. Love that. Can you help me understand, um, you know, the difference between kind of Christians doing nice things? So I think there's a lot of churches that will say, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to, there's a, you know, a, I don't know, a spring festival happening and we're going to hand out bottles of water at that. Um, that does seem like a good thing for a church to do, but I don't think that's what you're talking about when you talk about justice. There's, there, there's something more, uh, can you help me kind of pull that apart? What's the difference between kind of Christians doing good things in the world, uh, and, and really justice ultimately pushing towards how do we, you know, how do we challenge some of these, these structures that are, that are, that are unjust in our culture? Yeah. I think that a lot of you know, a lot of things that we do and we should do, we should keep doing them as a church is being present in the neighborhood, being present in the community, being a visible witness. Like you said, handing out water, sponsoring the festival, um, getting engaged. I mean, too often churches, people just don't know that the church exists and that they're invited. in. so I think that the, the emphasis on justice and no way to de-emphasize that. But I think when I'm talking about church-based justice ministries, I'm really talking about um, respond, helping someone in a way that it actually helps them get on their feet. It helps them get housing. It helps them find an adoptive home. It helps see transformation in their house and in their in their in their home or in their life. I think that too often we think that we can change the world in our spare spare change in our spare time, 
that we just think, hey, we just give a little money here, we give a little time. And I think what I'm calling us as the church to do is to say, how how do we make this more essential to our mission? That if we cease to exist as a church, that our city would notice. And so for us, we get really engaged on a couple issues and we pour a lot of money into it, hundreds of thousands of dollars into it each year. And it's around affordable housing and the foster care and adoption crisis in the city. And our conviction is that our church, even if we were the biggest church in town, we wouldn't be able to solve that that issue alone. So we partner with other churches um, to do that. And so that would be my challenge and encouragement is think of your outreach and your mission locally in the city as not just an effort you're doing, but an effort you're doing in partnership with other churches, because you can do a lot more together. You can get elected officials' attention much better. You can raise resources much better. Um, if you do it together and too often our, our justice and outreach ministries are too compartmentalized. Hmm. Yeah, that's very, that's interesting. So help me understand DC 127 and just homes. Um, how, you know, kind of, how did, how did that fit in? I, I hear you saying, which I think is, is wise. There's like a focus you've picked rather than there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of injustice in the world. You've picked a couple, uh, help us understand why these two, and then maybe give us a sense of what that looks like in, uh, sure. in church. Yeah, yeah. Now we have a lot of partners that we serve with, that we have volunteers with. We have over 20 you know, local and global partners. So we still do that like a traditional church would do. But we have these what we call signature justice ministries. And these are things that we have felt called to start as a church. And so about eight years ago, the, the mayor's staff in our city came to us and said, hey, we have a foster care and adoption crisis in our city. We have 300 kids that need to be adopted, um, over 2,000 kids in foster care, and we don't have enough homes. We're not working with any churches. And so we prayed about it and had this conviction that, wow, like, how is it that the church is not on the front lines of an issue that is so central to the heart of God, uh, that God is a father to the fatherless? And so we, we thought, man, if there's if there's no orphans in heaven, if we're all adopted in heaven, then why would there be orphans and kids without uh, families here on earth? And so we had this dream that one day there would be more families waiting to foster and adopt children in D.C. than there are children on a wait list waiting to be fostered or adopted. So we started this initiative, DC 127. We hired a full-time staff person out of our church. So rather than just giving money to a bunch of causes and not taking a lead ourselves, we said, okay, let's hire. We hired somebody in their 20s who was just passionate about this issue, who had lived it. And she led it and started this organization that's now grown to well over a half a million dollar organization that has five full-time staff that's working with 20 churches in DC um, that served over 200 kids in need. And so that's that's what we've been able to do over the last you know eight years. It's been you know written about in Time Magazine and Washington Post and other things. But my conviction is that hey, this has got to be a church-based justice ministry so that God's getting the glory, and it doesn't just become you know the YMCA over time where it had a great faith-based right. foundation, uh, yes. but it kind of lost that root over time. And and how do you ensure that that you know how do we ensure that that it happens that that continues. Um, you know, I think we all feel, or maybe we all, if we've been engaged in these kinds of issues, there is um, this pressure from, hey, if we just kind of lighten up on this stuff, we'll maybe get this funding over here, or um, you know, may, there might be a way for us to kind of dial down some of the, you know, frankly, the biblical call to justice. There may be a way for us to kind of, um, you know, step away from some of that and maybe theoretically help more people. How are you uh, able to help people stay focused, or what are you doing to ensure that they stay focused on, you know? 
know, being a church-based justice initiative? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few things. One is uh, there's, there's a lot of practical questions to that, that I can get into. Um, but I think first off, it's theological. Do we have a conviction that the, the local church is the hope of the world and that the local church should be on the front lines? I don't see that churches have trouble usually starting ministries, but I think that they have a hard time keeping them aligned with the church over time. It's kind of the explanation of why parachurch ministries have grown up so much is because the local church hasn't owned it. Um, and, and and I'm not against parachurch ministries at all, but I think that sometimes it we outsource mission to them and we need to own it a little bit more ourselves. And so there's a great book I'd recommend by Peter Greer called Mission Drift, uh, which really outlines how do you stay aligned? And this it's really applicable to kind of church-based justice ministries as well. But it's it's really a challenge of how do how does a parachurch ministry or just a ministry um, not become so not scale up so much that it loses its faith-based foundation? And so there's a lot of practical things you can do. I mean, one of the things we've done is how we've structured DC 127 and Just Homes that even though they're separate nonprofits, our board appoints those boards, and so so there's an alignment between our church board and their board. Um, some of the other things we've done is we provide free office space at our church. So it's like, Hey, you can go too far because Hey, we're blessing you. (laughs) Um, we give an opportunity for people in our church to give directly to those ministries. We give to them through our annual, um, Advent Christmas offering. And so, um, and then, and then we, somebody on our board is on their board. Um, so there's overlap there. So there's some structural things to do, but then I think it's mostly casting the vision and making sure, you know, not too much money is coming from the government, because one thing that will happen is that the, the government will soon pay attention. And that's what's happened with our ministries, that they can make a dollar go a lot farther with a bunch of volunteers. And right. so they'll want to give. And so you have to have some convictions around, A, will we take government money? And if we do, what percentage will we take so that it doesn't water down our mission? And my conviction has been that we never take more than a third of our budget from the government and we and preferably none, because I would never want to, to not take an opportunity or to not do the right thing because we were dependent on a secular source, so to speak, um, that would require us to a, not share our faith or to do something that wasn't integral to our mission. Yeah, I love that. And the thing uh, I want to highlight that I, I really appreciate about the way you're leading there, the way you, you answered that and are thinking this through is um, – I think sometimes we can jump too quickly to the structural issues uh, and and not to ultimately the hard issue, which is what's the vision behind this thing. And so we can change the structure. You know, it's actually pr- pretty easy to change the structure. That thing you just said there, the third, you know, at some point someone could decide, oh, we're going to, we'll take 50%. Uh, but if, if, if we just stick with the structural solution and we don't keep hammering home the vision, um, then, you know, we'll eventually, like you say, mission drift will end up in the wrong place. So I appreciate that, you know, that answer and that encouragement for us. Earlier in your second M, you made a distinction that I'd love to hear a little bit more about. Again, it caught my attention. Uh, you, you talked about being multicultural. You're, you're really focused on the church being multicultural rather than multi-ethnic. Help me understand the two and kind of what are you doing on that front? Help us understand what that means. Yeah. Well, first off, when we use the word even multicultural, what we're what we're meaning there, once again, is is that that word gets thrown around in, in, in politics and culture a lot. But we're really meaning that from a, a biblical sense of making disciples of all nations. Um, but I think that the way that um, church leaders um, and sociologists have defined multi-ethnic is when at least 20 percent 
of your church is of a different uh, racial demographic. So if it's a predominantly white church that you've got combined among people of color, at least 20%, that's what defines a multi-ethnic church. And there's more and more multi-ethnic churches that are racially diverse in America that that's growing. Now, some people are not located in spaces where that's possible, um, but there's a trend overall towards that. The difference between being a multi-ethnic church where there's racial diversity and a multicultural church is about cultural diversity in the church. Do you hear other languages being spoken? Do you hear other languages in worship? Do you experience other cultures within the church, uh, different types of food, um, different ways of approaching things? Because I think that oftentimes what happens, especially when a church is led by a white pastor like myself, is that it ends up, even though it's racially diverse, it's still pretty monocultural. It can still feel pretty white at the end of the day. And so how are we being intentional so that the 74 nationalities in our church, the Latino community, the black community, the Asian American community in our church actually feel like their culture is being represented and expressed not only on stage, but in our small groups and our discipleship ministries. That's what gets messy. And that's why not every church is called to do this um, because it's not always the fastest way to church growth is by being multicultural. For us, it's the conviction that we live in one of the most diverse uh, global cities of the world. And for us, it's it's an apologetic of our public witness to this city when they come in and we meet right behind Target and they say, wow, the, the worship gathering is just as diverse as Target was when I was shopping in there, that the nations right. are gathered Target shopping. Why, why, you know, wow, they're worshiping together and wow, they're learning from one another. And I think too often people come into a church and they don't feel like, they can bring their whole cultural experience to the church. And that compromises our discipleship process. Because if I can't bring my whole story, um, then it makes it hard. You know, and there's things from all of our cultures that are good and bad, right? So it's not like we need to bring everything from our culture. But there's a lot of richness in each of our cultures um, that I think our, our church and our discipleship is actually enriched when we can understand um, what God's doing in Nigeria, what God's doing in South Korea, what God's doing in Guatemala with those folks who are in our church and how they have worshiped Christ, how they've experienced Christ. And so that's that's part of what we're leaning into and we're, we're figuring out as we go. Yeah, I love and and you brought it up. So I'm, I'm going to walk through that door. One of the things that I have found interesting on uh, the kind of journey towards our churches being more multicultural is, which I do think is an imperative. Like you say, it's 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 more than just hey, we want to reflect our community. Um, I was challenged by Derwin Gray this year years ago because he was kind of in a gently gentle. Uh, sort of way was pushing me on the, hey, this isn't just a tag. It's not a marketing tactic. This is what the kingdom of Christ is called to be. Um, and w- one of my observations has been, and this is the part that may be a little bit risky, is um, the, I find that multi, truly multicultural churches are often not led by white guys. I can say that as a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, that they're, they're often led by, um, you know, folks that aren't white. And so, uh, the fact that you're uh, are are leading in that direction and seeing, as you indicated off the top, seeing real results in that area. This idea of even just the simple tactic that you and you emphasize it. You rolled over it because you may not even you know recognize that you do this. You said there are I think seven. Did you say seventy one different? Um, seventy four. Yeah, and even just being able to identify that, I think there's a lot of church leaders that are listening in today that could not identify that in their own church. That they wouldn't be able to say, "Hey, how many different kind of 
uh, voices, communities, countries do pe- do you know do people come from in our in our community? I, I uh, wh- why do you think there is maybe a difficulty, or why don't we see more multicultural churches that are led by you know by white folks? And again, maybe that may be an inappropriate question, but we're going to lean yeah, there. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a minute. I think it's a great question. Um, you know, my background is that even though I'm a white guy, I grew up as a missionary kid in Africa, and I've spent most of my life in, in African American neighborhoods our kids are both adopted they're african-american um so even though i'm really white i'm, I'm more cross-cultural um i'm certainly not anything close to black i don't fully ex- even understand the black experience but i'm not comfortable completely and i'm not totally comfortable in white only spaces and so sure. i think a lot of the people that do end up that are white that end up leading multicultural churches are these kind of third culture kids where you don't feel at home in, in either one. Um, a lot of them are in multiracial marriages and other things. And so, um, yeah, but I do think that you're able to understand the experience of people of color more when that's actually your experience. Like, you know what it's like to be other because of your skin color and you know what it's like to be an immigrant, you know? And so um, I definitely think that's true for us. We've been really tr- intentional about how do we reflect that leadership on our pastoral team. So we have mm-hmm. um, two African-Americans on our pastoral team. Our executive pastor, Kevin Nuritu, is from Kenya. He's a dynamic leader. Our worship pastor, Kimberly Williams, is a dynamic um, uh, worship pastor and leader. And then that's also reflected on our board as well, our, our, our church board. And so um, I think there's ways uh, to do that. But I think it's, you know, I have to be aware of, of my limitations in that. Um, but I, I want to say one other thing around yeah. The, the limitations around multicultural churches, the, the danger that I see a lot of churches make is that they make multicultural church an end in itself rather than reconciling mm. people to Christ. And if you oh, make wow. being a diverse church your end goal, you will not have a church in the next generation because what you will do is you'll worship diversity rather than worship Christ who calls us to evangelism that calls us to be united despite our diversity and liberal and mainline churches have made that mistake over and over again, where there's almost this kind of quota system where diversity is worship in and of itself. The same thing happens with justice ministry. If you make justice, the main focus of your church, if you make that the end result of your church rather than Jesus, then, then you will treat Jesus as a means to your end of trying to get justice done. And when you do that, you strip the gospel of its saving power of, of Christ reconciling us to, to, to the father through his death and resurrection. And, um, and so I think that's, that's the thing I'm, I'm very passionate about. And one of the things that I think is really important to keep church uh, justice work and multicultural work rooted in the local church and rooted in the gospel and, and rather than this kind of drift over time to only a social gospel expression of the faith. Mm-hmm. I love that. That, you know, listen, listeners who are listening, and I really hope you're, you've been leaning in today. Um, and this hopefully has whetted your appetite to follow the district, to learn more uh, about them. I really, uh, I've just enjoyed this conversation, enjoyed so much about what uh, your church is up to. Aaron, anything else you'd like to share just as we kind of come to the end of our episode? I wish we could talk for longer, uh, but yeah. anything else you'd love to share today? No, I just want to say thank you to you, Rich, for 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 investing in so many of us church leaders that are in the trenches that are trying to figure out how to do this and the practical side of ministry. 
Um, it can be so difficult to kind of learn these things that maybe we didn't learn in our traditional training, whether it was seminary or somewhere else. And so um, lo- love what you're doing and uh, just thank you for that. I'm so glad Richard Lee, uh, who's a mutual friend, introduced us. And um, yeah, really grateful. So, um, but love, anybody wants to connect, you can find us at districtchurch.org. Um, you can find my contact info on there as well. Um, and follow us as well. But we'd love to be an encouragement to you guys. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, for being on the, the show and just encouragement as we as we kind of turn the corner here into a new year. Just pray that uh, this coming year is just is just fantastic for the district church and for you and your family. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Don't be shy. We'd love to connect. Check out Unseminary Inbox. You can sign up at unseminary.com and we'll send you helpful training resources every week. Plus, you'll gain immediate access to our exclusive members area with tons of resources you can use. Connect with Rich on Twitter at Rich Birch or through email rich at unseminary.com Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at unseminary.com It includes links to what we talked about today and more. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Did you enjoy today's episode? Drop by iTunes and leave a review. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Join us next week when we'll learn more stuff we wish they taught in seminary.